0: This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. So we have been the feature podcast on Podbean for a few days at the point that this is gonna go up and we've had a huge spike in listeners and downloads. And normally we record these episodes pretty far in advance, so we wouldn't really be able to address something like this for a couple weeks, but we wanted to record this little message at the beginning of our newest episode to you know, address some of these new listeners and welcome them to the podcast.
1: So welcome, everyone. We're pretty thrilled that everybody is as interested in short stories, novellas, and comic books as we are. And we'd like to sort of give you an overview of what we do and how we do it.
0: Yeah, so this is basically a book club podcast. We are bi-monthly, but the version of bi-monthly, that means we record it twice a month. Not the version of bi-monthly, that means we record it every other month. Really sucks that that word means two things that are basically opposites, and one episode will always be on some sort of prose, normally a novella. Sometimes we'll do short stories, sometimes we'll do something else, and one episode will always be about a comic book, and a lot of times those will be part of a longer series where we cover one volume, one collection in a run. Every month, we did a 10-part series on The Sandman by Neil Gaiman and various other artists. And we just recently finished a six-part series on Alan Moore's classic Swamp Thing run from the 80s, you know, with John Tonlebin and Steve Bissett and Rick Veach and others. And you can go back and listen to those uh, if you go on our website. All of our stuff is tagged by author and genre. We cover a lot of science fiction and fantasy, but that's not, like, our main focus. We, we, we sort of bounce around the genre spectrum.
1: Yeah, and I think that basically how we got started was Nate is my son. Yes. And he's
0: a writer. Sort of.
1: And I'm a librarian. And the, theor- the theory of the podcast, the book club that started was that I would recommend a book or a short story or novella to him that he hadn't read. And he would recommend a comic book or a comic book writer that I hadn't read and we would discuss it. And we started doing this. It was kind of casual. over Froya. We would talk about books that we were reading or things that we were interested in. And then we decided to take it to a podcast, which yeah. we've been doing now. This is our 37th, 38th, depending on when you're listening to this episode.
0: Yep. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're going strong. Uh, I don't know how much more there is to say in terms of introduction. Like I said, we record this pretty far in advance. So if you want to ask us any questions, it would probably make more sense to go to twitter at dried up brains somebody had the singular version of our name for some reason Uh, and you can ask us questions there and we'll respond if you want us to answer on the podcast it'll take us like a month to get to it because that's how our recording schedule works
1: right and just some quick points especially about myself if i say spoiler alert i'm gonna spoil it anyway because that's just how i am
0: yeah, I'll always say there's a blanket spoiler alert for anything that's specifically the subject of a podcast, obviously we're gonna spoil the crap out of it and talk about the whole thing. And honestly we're not that great at not spoiling things outside of it. We'll try to throw up a spoiler alert if we're gonna touch on something that is outside the purview of a given episode. But I don't know, just be wary that if we bring something up it's there's a non zero chance we're gonna spoil it without realizing. That's true. And uh yeah. I guess that's it. So basically.
1: welcome. Have fun, and let us know what you think.
0: At the end of this episode, we're going to um, shout out what we're doing for January, and so you can get a heads up on that if you want to read along with us. And also, I know people are going to ask this, we end pretty much every episode by saying spoiler alert, stay tuned. Uh, That doesn't mean anything. That's a nonsense phrase, so don't worry about it.
1: Yeah, but do stay tuned.
0: Yeah, especially stay tuned because we're about to do a whole ass episode right now. (laughs) Hope you enjoy it. Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dread Up Brain, and I'm Nate.
1: And I'm Andrea.
0: This is a podcast where we read things, and we talk about those things. You're a, a librarian. librarian, that's what I was, I was going to say, a librarian, and uh, also you're my mom, so that's cool. And we, what did we read this time?
1: Well, this kicks off our very Merry Christmas season. We talk about The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus by L. Frank Baum.
0: Yes. What is the, Lyman? I think his name is Lyman. I think it's Lyman Frank Baum is what the L stands ah, for. Ah. Like yeah. uh, the man that John arbuckle murdered for his dog.
1: Oh, I see. So, um, everyone knows who Baum is. He's most known for his Oz series. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, if you don't know it, there's more than just one.
0: There's a lot of them. Uh, I, I'm i a big fan of the Oz books. I'm less of a fan of the movie. I know that's, like, sacrilegious. But I think the movie's pretty boring. Uh, especially compared to the books where the Tin Woodsman cuts the head off of, like, 40 wolves in one sequence.
1: Yeah, I think the books are much darker than the, te- than the movie. I did like that version that James Franco was in. I thought that was more authentic to the books than the original Wizard of Oz.
0: Oz the Great and Powerful? Yeah. I saw that in the movie theater by myself in a completely empty theater because even though they were screening it, it wasn't listed on the marquee. And I only knew about it because it was on, I saw it online. So when I bought a ticket, it was completely empty because like nobody else knew that the movie was playing. Uh Yeah, I mean, that movie has problems, but it's kind of interesting. I am mean, it's directed by Sam Raimi, which is weird. And he hasn't really done, like, anything since then. So I don't know if that got him landed in director jail or, or what, but, uh, yeah.
1: So this short novel was written specifically for children to tell the origin story of
0: Santa Claus. Yes, and it's like a secular origin story for Santa Claus. It doesn't mention the Christian faith really at all. It uses saint as kind of a generic term. There's like literally one line that acknowledges the connection to Saint Nicholas. And there's absolutely no mention of Jesus or the Nativity or any of that stuff. It is redolent with its own weird mythology that basically only exists in this book. That is like kind of a... um, Deist, but also animistic sort of worldview. We'll, we'll talk about it. It's interesting. I think that's one of the big reasons why I like this book so much. I guess we can start there. What, what did you think about this?
1: Well, I was kind of... Let's talk a little bit about Baum himself before sure. we get into it. So this novel was written in 1902, and the first Wizard of Oz was written in 1900. And that really is his big claim to fame. That was like his breakout novel. And that really brings him to the forefront of writing specifically children's literature.
0: Yeah. The Wizard of Oz was like, even before the movie, the Wizard of Oz was like a huge phenomenon. And they did like touring stage plays. At some point there was like competing stage plays between like him and I think, I, I, I should have looked this story up before I started talking about it. I think there was a, he had like a guy that he was working with and they had like a falling out and they both did their own.
1: So there was an unsanctioned version floating around?
0: I believe so, yes.
1: Well, a lot of people talk about Baum and call his works modern fairy tales. How do you feel about that term?
0: I don't think it's necessarily inaccurate. I think they're closer to fantasy stories than they are to fairy tales. There's very little... I guess in my mind, a fairy tale implies something darker than what Baum is generally interested in writing. There and they're not generally not like morality tales. They they are they kind of are in that like Baum will make his characters be good people and shout out like when they're being good and hold that up as something you should aspire to, but you don't get a lot of like karmic punishments, which are a lot of fairy tales are constructed around. I think. Fairy tales, in my mind, are stories that are supposed to, what you're supposed to get out of them is, the world is kind of dangerous, so be careful. And what you get out of the bomb stories is, like, the world's pretty weird, and you should try and be a good person.
1: That makes sense. I was surprised to learn, I read a little bit, I hadn't read a lot about him, and I was surprised to learn that he was an early feminist, and he was known for having strong female characters in his stories. And he was an early supporter of the suffrage movement. And Mm -hmm. that he was also well-known for advocating for Native American land rights, which I thought was kind of, I guess at the time, that was very controversial. And he really wrote a lot about discrimination and about sort of your favorite thing, this colonialism. Colonialism
0: was not my favorite thing.
1: No, no, it's not your favorite thing, but you you love to talk about the adverse effects of colonialism.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, we live in America. It's inescapable. It's a specter over literally everything here.
1: So do you think the odd stories are political allegories?
0: I don't know. Well, there's that famous one about them being about the gold standard, which I don't believe. That feels like That feels like really bad literary criticism, where you're trying to, like, Da Vinci code every story into being, like, a rebus for some sort of message. I think that there's some political—I think, like, his values clearly bleed through. The end of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, like, the happy ending is the colonizer goes home in a big hot air balloon. (laughs) And somebody who's actually from Oz, i.e. the Scarecrow, gets to be in charge, which is another reason— why I don't really like the movie cuz my boy the scarecrow does not get his due. But I don't necessarily think they were him trying to make a political statement. I think it was just like he wanted to impart certain values through his work and those values happen to align generally with his political beliefs.
1: Well, I think it's interesting because a lot of the research when I did some searching on like literary analysis and literary criticism of the Oz uh, stories, a lot of them focus on this concept that there are political allegories.
0: Sure. I mean, maybe they are.
1: But to go back to what you were saying about the religious aspect, um, Baum was really into, like, spiritualism. Mm-hmm. And I think this this story, more than the other one, sort of kind of leans into that because he has this whole...
0: What? A hierarchy of immortals? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. I so, totally blanked on that. Yeah, so what he sets up in this is there's every natural process in the world is executed and overseen by a invisible to humans largely immortal spirit and they all the different kinds of spirits have different domains over different things and then they're all ruled by their individual monarchs and then all the monarchs are overseen by these four like master tradesmen and then there's one little section where they reference a Supreme Master who created the world and stuff in it, but that character never shows up, and it seems like the Supreme Master doesn't have any regular and direct effect over the world. That's why I was calling it deist. It feels like the world was created, the creator left, and now a bunch of immortals are in charge, and that's sort of the animistic thing where it's like everything has like some degree of sentience, and it's like... All of the flowers are controlled by these by the rills, and all the trees are controlled by the nymphs, and so on and so forth.
1: But I think that's sort of common in a lot of his writings, because he does have these creatures that he creates. And mm. they they're sentient beings, but they're also things that would not be found in the real world. But let's talk a little bit about, let's get into the plot of this story you want to give us sort of an overview of what's going on
0: sure so the story starts in the forest of Bursey, which is mentioned in some of his other works too and there's like a map of like oz that shows the forest on like the border of oz or something uh which is but Bursey is this like primeval forest that is untouched by man and in an unknown location ock the master woodsman of the world who He has to visit every forest.
1: He also has a giant
0: axe. He does have a giant axe. He uh, comes to visit Berzy and he has this conversation with the queen of the forest nymphs, who are the immortals that are in charge of trees. And he's like, yeah, I don't try not to just like help humans because they're supposed to do their own thing, but I will help children. And in fact, I just helped this baby that was abandoned at the edge of the forest and I made it so that none of the animals could hurt him. And this lioness that was going to eat him is actually going to nurse him. <laughs> and then there's Nassil, one of the forest nymphs, who is dis- whose... Her tree has grown to maturity and no longer requires her direct and concert stewardship. Has grown dissatisfied with her lot in life. And she runs off to get the baby. Right. And then pleads with Ak and the queen of the nymphs that she be allowed to keep and raise this baby... And she is given that right. And the baby is named Klaus. Which but his is. technically his name is Niklaus, because it's the, it's the first syllable off of Nassil, the nymph, who who is his mom, his foster mother. Uh, so it's ne- Niklaus, or Niklas. And he grows up in the forest, unharmed by all the animals, and befriends all the various immortals that live there, and becomes this very sweet... And kind-hearted young man, and then when he's like a teenager, Ock returns making his route through all the forests, and takes him and shows him humanity and is basically like, you're a human, you're not immortal, you're gonna grow old and die, and humans are supposed to work and worry and live their lives and they they're, they kind of all suffer at least a little bit. And Klaus sees children and they're all neglected and... Sad, and none of them have any toys because toys don't exist yet. And he decides that he's going to leave the forest to go live amongst the humans like he has to, and he's going to make it his life's mission to try and make children happier. And I think at this
1: point, what Baum does is he now that he has built this world, this construct for a cloth to live in, mm-hmm. he then goes on to take all of the traditions related to Santa Claus and write the origin of those things. So Santa Claus invents toys, mm-hmm. he invents the Christmas tree, the stockings, you know, you learn how he got his sled and how he got his reindeer and how he got his assistance. Mm-hmm. And so like written like a children's story, he explains all the things that happen on Christmas that are related to Santa Claus in this story.
0: Yeah, so he he settles in the Laughing Valley. Uh, and that's why he laughs and goes, ho, 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 because he lives in this laughing valley. This is a, there's some interesting breaks from what we now accept in kind of a post-Coca-Cola world as being the standard Santa Claus mythos. So he doesn't live in the North Pole. Yes. He doesn't have elves. He has these, he does have diminutive immortals that help him, but they're, they're, none of them are elves. And uh, his reindeer aren't don't, don't have the standard array of reindeer names. I think those are the main ones, right? Is there anything else that he doesn't bring coal to naughty children because he doesn't really seem to believe in naughty children?
1: That's true.
0: There's no Krampus, but that's not really like a standard well, Santa Claus thing.
1: He doesn't. He does have an arch nemesis. This this group that
0: the have... uh, the Anguas.
1: A- Anguas.
0: We'll, we'll get to them. So he settles in the Laughing Valley, and the uh, immortals help him build his house, and he's having a good time, and he gets a cat. <laughs> Yes. And he makes a wooden, just sort of idly, makes a wooden replica of the cat. He carves a wooden cat. Well,
1: before that, he starts to live like a human. He, mm-hmm. he has, He's going to build a house and plant a garden. And then as he's doing all this stuff, the immortals come to him and they say, we'll do all this stuff for you so you can concentrate on helping children. Yeah. So then he realizes he doesn't actually have a lot to do. And then there's this weird snowstorm, I guess because he's also friends with Jack Frost.
0: Yeah, Jack Frost is like a minor antagonist in that he just shows up and is a little bit of a dick whenever he shows up.
1: Yeah, so he's kind of bored and he decides he's going to make this wooden sculpture of his cat. And he starts carving it and... By proxy, he invents toys because he he makes this cat toy, and then one of the children see it, and they realize that they can play with it, and it will bring them joy.
0: Yeah, two children show up, at there's the snowstorm, like you said, and two ch- lost children show up at his door because they, uh, you know, were lost, and he gives the one of them the cat, and then they go and they tell more people, and this reputation spreads that like. There's these cool things, they're called toys, and children can play with them and be happy. And this guy, Klaus, makes them, and he starts making toys and delivering them to the children. There's one sequence where his wet nurse, the lioness, shows up, and she's old now, and she's hanging out in his house with him and scaring his cat. And she's like, why don't you make one of those toys of me? Because I'm much more impressive than a stupid house cat. And he does, but it scares one of the kids when one of the kids shows up to get a toy. And that's when he realizes that toys need to be nice and not scary. Yes. He carves a toy based on his foster mother when she comes to visit him. And that's how the dolls are invented.
1: Yeah, and then there's a very weird sequence where he's making clothes and he convinces the fairies to give him fabric so he can put dresses on the dolls mm-hmm. and then he decides to make them look like babies because the girls want babies. Yeah. And so then he creates the baby doll and then he starts to make so much to- so many toys that he has to start delivering them to kids because he has too many in his house.
0: Yeah, well, because he, he, they build up in his house. There's two points where toys build up into a surplus. One is when it's there's a snowstorm, and he snowed into his house, and his house fills up with toys. And then he realizes that the deer can walk on the snow, and he makes a deal with the deer to help him deliver the toys. And this becomes this whole complicated thing where all the animals are under the stewardship of these immortals called nooks. Spelled with a K. Yeah, and the most important Nook in the story is Peter Nook, who is the most crooked and crotchety of the Nooks. I guess, they're never described in detail, but I just kept imagining them as, like, old men. They're described as being, like, bent and crooked and craggy. I
1: thought they, I thought that, too. I thought almost they were, like, gnomes, but then later But then on, gnomes
0: show up. Yes. <laughs> but uh, Peter is the Nook is like, so, you can have these deer to help you, but if you don't get them back in time... By morning, then you're not allowed to use the deer ever again. And then he gets the deer back in time. And the deer, he's allowed to use the deer. And they're given special herbs that make them strong and powerful and fast. And they get to bathe in a special pool that makes them beautiful.
1: (laughs) I was thinking about that. That's one of the gifts that the nymphs give him. But I wanted to get back to
0: toys. The story's very episodic. That's why we're kind of bouncing around. There's no, like, thrust of an ongoing plot.
1: Yes, each chapter is almost like its own short story. But I was really surprised that you didn't bring up that the story is about like ec- the economic divide. because when A shows him humanity, he shows sort of how some the children are very poor, mm-hmm. and the rich people who live in the town have nothing don't help the poor people. And then when class decides he wants to help people, he wants to help poor children. Mm-hmm. And then there's that part where the Lord's daughter shows up and he she wants a toy. Yeah. And he's kind of like, you have money, why don't you get your own toys? And then he realizes that all children need...
0: Yeah, it doesn't matter to the kid if they're rich or not. Like, they can be just as unhappy and bored as any other child.
1: But, I mean, he's... He, He's crafty. He just, like, he makes everything. He convinces the gnomes to give him steel so that he can have steel runners on his sled. Mm -hmm.
0: Also, his sled's runners also have secret, like, fucking speed racer wheels that slide out of them. Yes. So that if he goes to somewhere where it's not snowing, he can still use the sled. There's lots of that. I feel like Balm addresses directly a lot of, like, questions a kid would have about Santa Claus, where it's like, Oh, well, how does he get his sled here if there's no snow? And he's like, well, it's got wheels. There's a whole sequence where he explains what happens when you don't have a chimney, which also ends up being the invention of the Christmas tree. Yeah,
1: because I guess it...
0: And then the last chapter deals almost exclusively with how does Santa Claus deal with the fact that nobody has any fucking chimneys anymore?
1: Well, I guess because now the story moves from, like, the pre-industrial age to the industrial age, which is what's going on when he's... when bomb is writing this in the early 1900s yeah So i also think he starts to write these children's books at a time when children are now moving away from like going to work when they're nine years old sure so now they, they have the leisure time to listen to these stories
0: uh yeah so what's the other What what other stuff are we missing he makes the to- he makes the toys they're, they're nice oh so the the christmas eve thing happens because when he gets to the deer back the king of the nooks is like
1: he's an hour late yeah one minute he's
0: one minute late and so the punishment is he can only have the reindeer once a year and then he seemingly arbitrarily the king decides it's gonna be christmas eve but it turns out he he's trying to fuck with klaus because christmas eve is like a couple days away and he's not gonna be able to make it in time
1: I was thinking about this. I think the reason why he doesn't mention the fact that, you know, like Santa Claus is watching you or you have, you can't be naughty is because in the plot of the story, the, the Agwas, they despise Claus Mm -hmm. and there are these sort of invisible to human entities that manipulate children and make them act naughty.
0: Yeah, they bring out people's worst impulses. The explanation in the story for Santa Claus is Watching You and He Knows When You've Been Naughty and Good is that that's par- parents make that up about him to right. try and control their children. He doesn't actually care and will give gifts to whoever he can give gifts to. Right. But yeah, so the whole Anguas thing is... They're a,
1: jealous of his altruistic lifestyle and they decide that they're going to mix in with him and make his job more difficult.
0: Yeah, and they end up stealing a ton of his toys and hiding them somewhere. And then all the immortals go to war against them.
1: I like at one point their first thing that they do is they kidnap him. Mm -hmm. And then they take him to a tropical forest so he can't come home. And then he has to, Claus has to ask the fairies and the nooks to bring him back. Yeah. And at one point they put him in a cave and they leave him in the cave.
0: Yeah, There's a weird thing is there's almost a second draft of this story later. uh, Baum wrote a short story sort of sequel to this called A Kidnapped Santa Claus.
1: Does it take place with the Anguas? No,
0: it takes place afterwards because the main characters are his deputies.
1: Well, he gets kidnapped again?
0: Yeah, so (laughs) A Kidnapped Santa Claus introduces that at the edge of the Laughing Valley there's a mountain with the cave of the demons in it. And the demon cave is like this metaphor for being bad essentially so there's a demon of envy selfishness hatred and malice and when you you feel those things it means you're visiting their caves and then off to the side from them is the cave of the demon of repentance and so people go into the cave of the demon of you know whatever bad vice they're experiencing and then they escape through the cave of repentance and the demons hate santa claus because he's inspiring everyone to be so good that less and less people are visiting their caves And so they kidnap him to try and ruin Christmas Eve, and his deputies successfully execute the Christmas deliveries and then lead the, the army of the immortals to the cave of the demons, but the Demon of Repentance has already let Santa Claus out. And that's the whole story.
1: So the Aguas, Anguas.
0: Yeah, they're invisible monsters, and they...
1: Yeah, first they take them to the tropical world and the nooks, Make this deal and say, okay, you're a friend of the fairies, you're our friend, and then we're going to take care of you, and they bring him back.
0: Yeah, he knows a special whistle that summons the nooks. Of course. And so the, even though then the tropical nooks don't directly know him, he's like, I'm a friend of your brethren in the forest of bursey so please help me.
1: So then the second time he gets put in a cave, and he has to call upon the fairies mm-hmm. to rescue him. And then the Anguas realize that the immortals will help him. So the third time that they mess with him, they just take his big sled of toys, and he has no toys to give to the children. Yeah. So then he calls upon Ak, mm-hmm. or Ak visits him, because he does this sort of yearly visit where he visits the Laughing Valley and visits the forest of Bursey And he finds out what's going on, and then Ak decides that he's going to confront them. And he causes this like epic battle with all of these immortals. Yeah,
0: it's like a Lord of the Rings battle in the middle of this book.
1: <laughs> and then they just wipe out these monsters. And then, and then if, and then just kind of casually says, "And there's no more anguas in the world. That's why you never see them anymore, mm-hmm. because the woodsman destroyed the entire <laughs> species."
0: Yeah, it's, I mean it's it's pretty intense, but they seem like uh, bad dudes.
1: So then from there that's when so that's like the action part of the story and then the rest of the book is just the systematic explanation of the different parts of the sort of mythos of Santa Claus. So he talks about the reindeer, which aren't reindeer like we think of them like traditional like a you know an animal that is a reindeer, mm. they're called reindeer because they're deer That wear reins. Yeah. And then he... I mean, that's why I think the Nooks get so upset about Santa using them. Because he's like almost enslaving these deer to be his servants. And Mm. the Nooks don't like it. That's why they give him a pushback on... But the deer really like it. Because they get their fancy food that makes them very strong. And they get to take the special bath and make themselves even more beautiful. And then... He makes the reins out of lion leather, but he specifically says in the book, which is a weird detail, that the lions died peaceful deaths. Claus
0: so, well, and- does not kill anything or anyone, not even plants. He builds his house out of fallen wood and...
1: He asks the reels to move the flower so that his house isn't resting on... So hes I guess he's a vegan.
0: Yeah. He well, seems the, like a
1: hipster. He's got a long beard. He's a vegan. The, he makes his own toys out of wood.
0: Yeah. It's very—it's brushed off pretty quickly. Like, what does he eat? Because the field reels are like, hey, we'll provide your food. And then that's it. Because yeah. at first he's like, oh, well, I guess I'm going to have to farm. And then they're like, nah, we got you, dog. Yeah.
1: yeah. So they do everything. And even at some point, they start to help him with the production of the toys. But I thought it was really interesting. Like you said, there's like all these details that answer questions that children might have. Because there's a point in there where he says, well, yeah, Santa Claus makes all the toys for all the kids. But then he also makes extra toys and he puts them in the toy store in case parents want to buy more toys. So I guess it's sort of, you know, if they say like, I saw my dad putting stuff under the tree. Santa's got you covered. He actually made those toys and your parents are just his deputies.
0: Yeah, that's also addressed directly in A Kidnapped Santa Claus, where the demons are trying to make him, you know, feel bad, and I think the demon of hatred is like, don't you hate the toy stores, because they're taking all your credit, and like, you know, you make all these toys, and like, and he's like, no, I like the toy stores, it's cool, because people should be able to get a toy even when it's not Christmas, just because that's, the delay, the day I deliver them doesn't mean that should be the only day for toys ever.
1: Right, and he says that, some days it'll be your birthday, or you get a special treat, the only part that sort of made me cringe a little bit was this whole thing when he explains how he invented the Christmas tree and he goes to these poor children living in a tent.
0: Well, I mean, I think this is, I think they're supposed to be Native Americans. He goes, finds a family, that live in a tent, they don't have a chimney, he can't go in the chimney, so he puts all the toys on a tree outside and that's the invention of the Christmas tree.
1: Yeah, and I kind of feel like that's kind, of, but I mean that might just be culturally like at the time, you
0: know. It's not that bad. Like they're, not, it's not like they're described as like they're just people who live in a tent. Oh. <laughs> like that's really all he, all there is, and it's like it's supposed to. I feel like it's less that happens well before the whole like uh, people don't have chimneys anymore conversation. So I think the implication is that's happening in some nebulous distant past. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, so he invents, um, he gets his name. This is what we're talking about. The religion is kind of obscured. The explanation for him being called Santa Claus is a lot of the parents say, boy, he's a real saint to do all this charitable work for children. Yeah, And then he became Saint Claus, and it gets abbreviated, like, nicknamed to Santa Claus.
0: Yeah, and the narration says, like, any compassionate person can enshrine themselves in the hearts of men as a saint. So it's like, like I said, in this instance, they're using saint as kind of a generic like term for a well-remembered person who is good.
1: And then also, I mean, another thing that Baum does is, even though it's not in the North Pole, there's it's a very clear part of the story where Klaus sets up his toy workshop. Mm -hmm. And then he spends the whole entire year making toys in his workshop and putting them on these shelves so that he has a supply of toys for kids. Yeah. Yes, and then he invents the stocking. This happens early on before he gets really well known. I guess some children had gone out in the snow and were naughty and got wet stockings. And they hung them Mm -hmm. by the chimney with care, I'm sure. Yeah. And then, to save time, he sees them hanging on the chimney, so he just puts the toys in there, so he doesn't have to waste his time going into the house. yeah, but I also like the one point, I guess another point about if kids had questions when one of the is it the nook says, "Why don't you just go down the chimney or the reindeer says it, "Why don't you just go down the chimney?" He gives this long, detailed like explanation of how Santa Claus can go down a chimney while if there's a wood fire in it and not burn his ass (laughs) yeah (laughs) i think that's pretty great because i can imagine like that would be like young nate like how does he do it the logistics don't make any sense
0: yeah it's interesting he's very judicious about when magic is applied like he treats santa claus similarly to like Like a Hercules or something where like most of what he does are feats he accomplishes through himself and then he gets some magic from the help of the Nooks. But he himself is not inherently magical, which is a thing you see in a lot of media portraying Santa Claus.
1: So this goes on for many years and now Santa Claus is old.
0: Yeah. And he's
1: in his 60s. He's very fat and he has a long beard and he's getting tired. And this is the
0: part that makes me cry.
1: And he's kind of slowing down, and he's kind of, like, a little bit sad. And then, I don't know, does he reach out to Ack or does no. Ack sees him aging and sees that he's slowing down, and he realizes that the children would have, you know, something would be lost in their life if they didn't have Santa Claus.
0: Okay, so here's the thing I was wondering. Baum is, like, is in his 50s when he writes this book. Is this him processing, like, his own mortality?
1: Is this his uh, jitterbug perfume? Is that what this is? This is because his... well, it's
0: like this little friend of children who spent his entire life helping children, and now he's like getting old, and he's going to die.
1: I think so because also I think too is this world that Baum is working in now has changed a yeah. lot from when he started. So, so tell us about how he becomes
0: okay. Older. So he's old. He's reached a point where he can't make toys anymore. He's gotten fat. He's gotten. Um, his beard is turned all white. He has crow's feet, and he's gotten so old that he can't make toys anymore. And he's just laying on his bed as if in a dream. And Ock sees him and realizes that like he's gonna die, and like he told him when he first took him out of the forest, like that that was gonna happen. But now, after all the good that cause has done, this is unacceptable to Ock. And he convenes a meeting of all the immortals in the world. So this is where we get like a rundown of all the different kinds of immortals that didn't show up yet. There's sound imps that carry the sounds to everyone's ears. There's light elves. Um, And there's a weird detail with the light elves where the king of the light elves has two sons, Flash and Twilight. Mm -hmm. And Flash is like a mischief maker and he like shines a bright light everywhere. But Twilight is a keeper of a snuffer and a cloak that, if dropped, will plunge the world into eternal darkness. <laughs> there's the Gnome King who, he, earlier in the story, he brings presents to the Gnome King's kids and becomes friends with the Gnome King. And I think the Gnome King makes the jingle bells for this like. Right. And then there's the other master tradesman. So in addition to Ok, the master woodsman of the world, in addition to Ahk, it's Bo, the master mariner of the world, and Kern, the master husbandman of the world. And then there's also the Gnome King, the Queen of the Water Spirits, the King of the Wind Demons, the King of the Rills, the King of the Nooks, the King of the Sound Nymphs, the King of the Sleep Phase, who's pretty clearly the Sandman. He has like a wand that shoots sand out of it that makes everybody fall asleep. The Fairy Queen, Queen Zerlene of the Wood Nymphs, and the King of the Light Elves with his princes. And they, Ak reveals that there's this thing called the Mantle of Immortality that was created by the Supreme Master at some point at like the dawn of time and hasn't been used yet. And he makes the argument that it was created for a reason. Obviously, it's supposed to be used by someone at some point. And if Santa Claus does not deserve it, then no one will ever deserve it. And it was pointless to have made it in the first place. And he convenes a vote among all the immortals on whether or not they should bestow the mantle of immortality on Santa Claus.
1: Here's the thing. I thought this was a lost opportunity because I was so sure that the mantle was going to be his suit or the cape, you know, the fur. I thought it was going to be his red iconic outfit, and it's really not.
0: Yeah, he just gets the outfit offhand. Like, I think, like, the fairies or somebody makes it for him when they're building his house. And it's just described as a suit of sturdy woolen clothes is basically it. Uh, Yeah, the mantle is, like, it's it's just like a harness,
1: it's like a pair of suspenders that he wears maybe that's it maybe that's supposed to be his iconic suspenders that he wears but i really thought that it would have been like that was an opportunity to sort of explain the origin of the santa claus
0: suit but so they all all the immortals unanimously vote in favor of giving Klaus the mantle and so they go to his house where he is sleeping and presumably about to die and they lay the mantle on him, and he, like, absorbs it into his body. Yeah. And he is returned to the vigor of his youth. He still looks old. Yes. But he's he's sprightly and, uh, you know, has his energy again. And his foster mother gives him a kiss on the forehead, and all the immortals leave. And the next day he wakes up excited because now he has he energy again. He can go back to making toys. And Ox shows up and is like, hey... We made you, we had a, me and all of the spirits of the world had a vote and we decided you should be immortal because you're the best guy who's ever lived. And he's, Santa Claus is like, wow, that's great. Thank you very much.
1: So then he decides that because he has all of the trappings that he needs now to be this modern Santa Claus, he gets these deputies, some of the immortals, like the nooks and the reals start helping him make the toys
0: yeah and he gets four deputies who are the main characters in that kidnap Santa Claus story uh, what are they? there's Peter is one of them he comes back to be one of his uh, deputies you whisk the fairy kilter the pixie and I uh, don't neuter the real <laughs> nutER nutter neuter either way it's problematic. Uh, and they they help him. And when he, the last chapter of the story is like, uh, it's the industrial revolution has happened and everyone has stoves. And so they don't have chimneys when Santa Claus doesn't know how to get in their houses. And his assistants are like, well, whenever you can't get in the house, we'll turn intangible and help you deliver the toys.
1: I love these names that... I mean, Baum always comes up with the wackiest names. Like, he just sort of... <laughs> like, it's like stream of consciousness, the way that he comes up with the names that he gives people and creatures in any of his books.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, I like that one of them... I like that it's Whisk, Neuter, <laughs> and Kilter, but also Peter. Yes. But also, is that a... Is that a... Santa Claus? noble goodly man best guy who ever lived he gets conferred with the mantle of immortality one of his disciples is named peter is that something
1: it could <laughs> be it could be i don't know it's hard to know because Baum wasn't entirely involved in like traditional religions he seemed yeah. to be involved in these fringe religions well,
0: i think peter the nook is just named that because it's supposed to be like a jack frost sort of name yeah but then he gives all the other ones like goofy Nonsense names, but whatever. Uh, yeah, that's the end of the story. Like the, it continues on fr- until now. Santa Claus is still around, and he delivers toys. And
1: well, there's a couple things. I mean, overall, I thought it was okay. I mean, it was written for children; It was a very mm. fast read. We read the edition from Project Gutenberg. Yeah, that's difference. There is, in the free public domain, you can get a version with the illustrations. Mm -hmm. I didn't look at that, but those illustrations are sort of iconic illustrations. Um, I thought it was interesting, though, because it was very light on, like, religion, and it didn't have this sort of moral tone to it, Mm -hmm. which I guess, you know, literature at the time was all about teaching children how to be good people or to be, like, morally upright.
0: Yeah. Oh, so the the one thing the one nod to St. Nicholas that give it is given is it's there's like an offhand mention at one point that like at somewhere along the lines that these two guys got conflated, but they're not the same dude.
1: Well, I think that would happen as like his reputation started to go beyond the laughing valley and into the mainstream world. People would compare him to things that they know about. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this I'm thinking about The Night Before Christmas, the poem by Clement Clark Moore, which was written actually really early in 1823. Mm -hmm. And I think this is sort of at the time that this poem comes out, and then the corresponding illustrations as the poem gained popularity. And it was like every year it was reprinted in all these different newspapers, and they started to have famous artists do depictions of what they thought Santa Claus looked like. And then I guess for the next, like, almost 80 years, this sort of idea of Santa Claus comes from that poem. And then, so it sort of sets the standard at the time of what Santa Claus looks like and what he does. Yeah. And I think that when Baum writes this story, which also becomes a huge bestseller, he sort of takes some of those preconceived notions of Santa Claus and the depiction of Santa Claus And he doesn't really lean into them as much as one would expect him to. Like I said, he doesn't mention the red suit, but he does talk about the the reindeer and coming down the chimney and all these different things.
0: Yeah, and like Baum was born in like 1856, so he almost certainly would have read that poem when he was a kid. And I think that like... Yeah, this is like I I think it's him trying to make a sort of more universal Santa Claus. So much of the book is Santa Claus talking about how like every kid, no matter what, deserves these presents, and this feels like Baum trying. To, I think one of the reasons I like this story so much is it feels like Baum trying to wrestle the myth of Santa Claus away from Christianity to make it into something universal, like like a Johnny Appleseed or whatever, so that anyone that wants to celebrate Christmas and have Santa Claus give them presents can do it. I, I mean, there's arguments to be made about that being a form of cultural imperialism, but I think it's undeniably well-intentioned.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Like, when I was reading it, at first I thought that this was sort of like, like an early version of, like, fan fiction. It totally is. And it's, like, interesting because I was thinking about, like, in the early 2000s, there was this sort of spate of books that would take like literary characters or like you know famous characters and create these sort of individualized backstories about these each character. Mm-hmm. And I felt like this was sort of what he was doing. He was creating like a richer, more in-depth like origin story for Santa Claus. but he was also challenging some of the preconceived notions that Moore had put in his poem.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think, like, it's another thing that I really like about it is it feels like a weird, like, it feels like a prediction of a style of story that would become really popular a lot later. Like, this reminds me of things like, uh, like Green Lantern and Secret Origin, where it's like, let's go back and retell the origin of the Green Lantern from a modern perspective, and like, here's why he has his bomber jacket, and here's why this thing's this way. Baum reached this point with the Santa Claus character where he's like, I know all the things that are essential for the Santa Claus mythos, so how do I work those into a coherent narrative that describes a singular character? And then you can see in the history of comic books, writers reach that point with the superhero characters and be like, okay, I understand all the things that make Spider-Man Spider-Man, so how do we rework those into something more streamlined and coherent, and then we get like the ultimate Spider-Man comic? And in a way, this is kind of like ultimate Santa Claus, and I think that's really interesting.
1: I think if you if you know anything about me it's that once it hits December 1st I reattach myself to this obsession that I have with the nutcracker mm-hmm. with the 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 ballet the music the concept of the nutcracker and in 2017 Greg, Gregory Maguire who's best known for writing Wicked
0: also you know us. he
1: wrote a book called Hidden Sea which was the untold biography of the Nutcracker. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I immediately read that while I was listening to the ballet. You know, I just – something about that at Christmas time just sort of – I mean, I don't even have a Nutcracker. No. But I am obsessed with this sort of idea of the Nutcracker. And he does the same thing that Baum does, but he does it for the Nutcracker. He creates Mm. this sort of imaginary story about how he went from being – the you know a human being or being the actual wooden soldier the you know the story behind how he went from being a human being to being the nutcracker in the play you know in the ballet and i think like he sort of i mean first of all he's obsessed with the oz world he's written mm-hmm. like 12 books about different characters in you know that bomb had created for his oz series but he sort of takes the same sort of technique that Baum does where he takes a character or a famous character or a character that's never fully fleshed out and he creates his own version of his history. Yeah,
0: I think it's – we've mentioned – mentioned it a couple times on the podcast but it's also very similar to Philip Jose Farmer's Wald Newton books. He does the same thing with uh, – Doc Savage in Doc Savage, His Apocalyptic Life, and with Tarzan in Tarzan Alive, the definitive biography of Lord Greystoke, I think is the full title of that one.
1: Well, I mean, as a librarian, I hate these sort of genre titles that they put on different kinds of, like, they call it revisionist retelling, which I find to be, like, sort of a, like a complicated... Phrase to describe this type of literature.
0: I don't think it's terribly inaccurate, though. You are literally revising and retelling at the same time.
1: But I think, like, Baum may have been an early innovator in this genre.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think so.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the adaptations, the 1985 film. I know you have some thoughts about this.
0: Yeah, so there's there's like two adaptations of this, right? Cuz I think there's a tra- a much later traditionally animated one. So there was a, there's a Rankin Bass one, which is like one of their later ones. Like I have people associate Rankin Bass uh with the 70s, I think. And it's and you know, it's done in a similar style to all their other things with the the stop motion, but it's it's a really interesting anomaly in their Uh, in their oeuvre, because one, I don't think it's a musical. I don't think there's any songs in it. And two, the characters look different. Like, there's that classic Rankin-Bass character design that I'm sure you can picture if you've seen any of these Christmas specials, like Santa Claus is Coming to Town or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, where it's, like, the big round heads and the little bulbous noses. And this eschews that almost completely, and the characters are much more realistically proportioned. And it has a much more, um, not somber tone than the other ones, but it's a, it's a very different tone. You know, it's not like a, oh, here's a wacky thing and Burl Ives is here and Fred Astaire is going to voice a character. It's a much more like, here's your, uh, as, as sort of like thoughtful and caring an adaptation of this fantasy story as we can muster. And I dig it a lot and it's almost never shown. So I have like weird bits and pieces memories of this adaptation and then there's a later one that i have more definitive memories of because they would play it on cartoon network sometimes uh that was like yeah it's like from 2000 and it's like a traditionally animated one and i I remember it looking kind of crummy uh and they make the anguas look like uh the rock eater from the never-ending story oh really and then that one uh, the master rock is like an angel like he looks like an angel he has like big wings But yeah, I don't know. I think they're cool. I I like that people have tried to adapt it. I think there's totally room to do it again if somebody wanted to. It doesn't really have a, if you were going to make like a movie, I think you'd have to rework it a little bit. Because like we said, it's very episodic. There is no like.
1: It would be interesting to do it as a limited edition TV series. That
0: would make more sense than anything.
1: You know, like a prestige version of it. Mm -hmm. Because you would need a lot of special effects.
0: Oh, yeah, because there's all sorts of crazy immortals and talking animals and there's a Lord of the Rings battle with invisible demons.
1: But I think it's interesting because when you pitch this idea of doing two versions of stories about Santa Claus for the month of December for the podcast, this was a while ago, you know, Mm pre-planning for the podcast. Just recently, I saw that Netflix now has a movie. That they're pushing for the holidays called Claus, which tells the origin story of Santa Claus. It's not based on Bob's book. Yeah. But it's related in the sort of the same thing. Mm-hmm. So it's Claus with a K, which is. Yeah. The same title alert. as
0: the comic we're going to do.
1: <laughs> That's right. You want to talk about our next stop?
0: Uh, sure. I mean, so the next thing we're going to do is we're going to finish out December with another origin story for Santa Claus. And this is a pretty different one a very cotton a, a not dissimilar narrative philosophy at work but a very different result and that is grant morrison and dan mora's klaus just with a k just klaus which is a i think a 2015 comic that they did it's a six or seven issue miniseries six six issue miniseries that just tells a, another take on the origin of santa claus and it's more of like an actiony fantasy sort of thing i described it as being kind of like if santa claus was conan the barbarian it's not quite that but it that's not a totally inaccurate description of this
1: when i saw the preview for i haven't read it that's mm. and i haven't read anything grant by grant Morris. yeah this so this is going to be a very new experience on two levels when i saw the netflix preview i thought it was an adaptation of the comic because they have the same exact name
0: yeah it's something different though i think it would be cool to do an adaptation of the comic the comic is both of these are weird like the life and adventures of santa claus and clouds are both weird takes on santa claus we you and i were talking about the life and adventures before the podcast well you when you told me you would finish it i was like it's weird right and you were like yeah and i was like it's weird in the same way that like medieval christian apocrypha is weird where you're like here's a story where the apostle paul like converts a lion to christianity and has a very similar energy not just because all the both involve lions but has a very similar energy to the life and adventures of santa claus where it's like you think you know the story but like here's santa claus's war with invisible demons and here's like the point where all of the spirits of the world have a meeting and vote him worthy of immortality.
1: Yeah. There's some bizarre stuff in it, but you know what? I think it's easier for kids to accept those weird things that it might be for adults.
0: Sure. Probably. I really like the mythology and the life and adventures of Santa Claus. That's like a big part. Another big part of why I like it is that Baum's like, Oh, I got to tell this story about Santa Claus. So let me quickly develop this intricate world building like there's so much implied by this that is like yeah well the story is about Santa Claus so we don't have time to deal with all the other implications or like what the master mariner is doing and it's like is Davy Jones to the master mariner as Santa Claus is to Oak? I don't know. That would be there's like lots of room where he could have told more stories with this world but he just you know he didn't.
1: But I think that Baum is really good at world building. And I think he sort of sets the precedent for this concept of, like, the serialization of, like, you know, stories that come, like, later on with young adult novels. Now, like, every single young adult novel has to have at least three volumes in the series. But Baum created a world and was able to continuously put out stories in one world to build sort of a whole arching, um, body of literature that covered just like, you know, because children like to hear stories that are similar because they like the comfort of knowing what's going to happen. And Baum, instead of like having a formula where he would just grind out stories that had the same formula, he created a world and created different characters. So it seems familiar to the children who would read them, Mm -hmm. but it's different. It's a little more sophisticated. He's also really good at sort of this, you know, we talk a lot about the, you know, Gene the Loki. And he does that, too, because Oz and the Laughing Valley and Bursey, they're just as much part of the story as the characters that are in the story.
0: Yeah, well, like, Klaus, like, literally befriends the valley in the same way that he befriends all the immortals and all the children. Yeah, I think, like, it's... I agree with what you said. Like, I do think Baum is a great world builder or was a great world builder but he's a world builder in a very different way than i think we talk about now so much so often now when people are shouting out someone as being a good world builder what they're saying is like oh this person is a good world builder because they built this like intricate machine with all these moving pieces that stick together and it's like a simulation of a world and we know how the you know the example i always give is like we know how the money works but you don't need to know how the money works unless the story is about money but Baum's world building is different because what makes his world building good is he has has an eye for little details that will stick in your head and coming up with compelling ideas that stick with you. And so it's like, yeah, I don't necessarily know all the political machinations of like the different like lands they encounter in Oz, but I remember like all the little details from them because they're charming. And that's the same thing here where it's like he doesn't go into detail about exactly how all of this mythology works but like I'm not at any point ever going to forget about Ahch, the master woodsman of the world because it's such a compelling detail.
1: I also think that parts of the story, details like that, he puts in there so that he can go back and revisit them if he wants to build the world out. Yeah, It's almost like We want to hear the story of these immortals, but it's and I mean I guess we don't get to hear that. But maybe Gregory Maguire can hit it, you know, write a story about the Master Woodsman. But I think like that option is always there for Baum, you know. In his later Oz books, he picks up minor characters and he enhances them, or he goes back to. ...worlds that he visited before, and he fleshes out those stories.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: I mean, there's an interesting... I mean, there has to be something about it that keeps it relevant. Because Mm -hmm. a lot of children's literature in the early 1900s... I mean, it's kind of obscure at this point, and it's kind of really dated, and Mm -hmm. it hasn't really latched on. I mean, who's reading these, like, Horatio Alger books anymore other than hearing people talk about them all the time.
0: Yeah, well, there's like a million books written in the past that were like, Squunky, the, the dog who saved the town. And those books just basically don't exist because like the only people that read them are either dead or old and bitter now. And like it's interesting to see the stuff that does stick around.
1: Do you remember you, at some point, I don't know if you got it from your grandmother on your father's side, but you had a book that was old... Like, newspaper stories for kids? Yeah, I remember that. Do you remember remember that that weird book? And it had those, like, you know, like, Popsy the Naughty Puppy and Mm -hmm. things like that. They were very weird. And they were sort of just reproductions, like, almost photocopies of, like, actual newspaper short stories, which is weird in itself to think that you would buy a newspaper to read a short story to a child.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I remember that yeah I wish I still had that I, I we must have gotten rid of that at some point. What a weird book. It was a weird book.
1: It was also one I think one of those things where all oh, this isn't a public domain. We can repack it oh yeah, it. totally so, so next up we're doing Claus with a K.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Are we gonna watch the Netflix movie or are we just gonna I mean, it's
0: unrelated. I might watch it. <laughs> I watched that one they made where Kurt Russell was Santa Claus. <laughs> There's a part in that movie where he goes to jail. And the E Street Band are there. No Bruce, but just the E Street Band. And then he does a song with them.
1: Is it implied that Bruce is actually Santa Claus? That's why he's not there.
0: No, I thought that maybe that's what they were going to do. But no, it's just... I don't think they're supposed to be the E Street Band. I think it's just like, these guys who are in this jail are musicians. And they are played by the E Street Band. Uh, do we have anything else to say? Or are we done with this episode? I don't
1: think we're done with it.
0: Okay, well... Spoiler alert, stay tuned, and Merry, Merry Christmas! Christmas. <laughs> <laughs>